Welcome to this episode of Entangled With, the podcast about quantum technologies for scientists and science enthusiasts. This episode is being hosted by Mike and Dan. We're both members of the Quantum Engineering CDT at the University of Bristol in the UK. Today's guest is Daniel Sank, a senior research scientist in the Quantum AI group at Google. Daniel earned his PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he worked on noise and readout in superconducting quantum bits. There, he measured the quantum state of a trans one qubit with speed and accuracy suitable for error-corrected quantum computation. Presently, he's part of the Quantum AI group at Google, where he continues to work on quantum state measurement, hardware, software, and the underlying physics. In addition to research, Daniel is interested in contributing to publicly accessible math, physics, and programming resources. The Google Quantum AI group, which we refer to in this podcast as just Google, has been putting out groundbreaking research in the field of quantum computing for the last few years. In this episode, we discuss some of this work, including their quantum supremacy paper from 2019 and a paper that came out in early 2021, which demonstrated quantum error correction on their superconducting chip called Sycamore. A couple of points for people who are unfamiliar with the work that Google have been doing. They use superconducting circuits as a physical implementation for their qubits. Or more specifically, these circuits are called transmons. Also, the Sycamore chip was originally built with 54 of these transmon qubits, but only 53 were used in their supremacy experiment due to one of them not functioning properly. Daniel's expertise and his passion for science communication make him a great person to speak to, and we think that he does an excellent job in this episode to make the complicated work that Google do accessible. And now we'll jump into the episode, Entangled with Daniel Sank. Hi Daniel, thanks for joining us today. I guess we can jump right into it then. So perhaps you could begin by giving us an introduction on how you came to work for Google on their quantum efforts. Yeah, certainly. It started when I was an undergrad and uh, I was looking for interesting courses to take at uh, Yale, where I was a student. And there was a course taught by Michelle Deveray. And the title of the course was something really funny. It was a really long title, like noise amplification, dissipation, and information or something like that. It was a lot of a lot of words and I had no idea what it was, but I'd heard that it was interesting. So I went and, and took it as a, as an elective class. And I remember at one point that he sort of mentioned almost, almost offhand that an electrical circuit could behave as a quantum mechanical thing. And at the time that was a surprise, but also a very gratifying thing to hear because we'd been taught in quantum mechanics class that quantum mechanics only applied to the microscopic world. And I always thought that that was a very arbitrary boundary and, and sort of a, an ill-defined one. And I had no idea what it meant and no one could really explain why. So when Michelle said that quantum mechanics could apply to a big thing, I thought, oh, okay, that kind of, that actually kind of makes sense. I'm, I'm not super surprised to hear this. Also, I want to know more. So I asked him about it and he said, well, yeah, it's true. And if you really want to, you know, get into that world, it's, it's actually an experimental field that, that exists and is burgeoning. And, you know, you can check out a variety of labs, both at Yale and at UCSB and other places. And he mentioned John Martinez. So then that's why I looked into UCSB where John was a professor as a potential place to be a grad student. And from there, it just kind of worked out. Um, I wound up joining John's lab as a grad student and then got really lucky that Google scooped up John and his group, you know, into an industrial effort. So 
I've been there ever since. So he, he sort of started the group at Google then, did he? Oh, well, not quite. So the Google Quantum Group existed independently of the UCSB Experimental Group. So Hartman Nevin, I think Hartman Nevin started the team at Google. And in the beginning, I think it was entirely centered around using the D-Wave hardware to see if uh, they could solve machine learning type problems, optimization problems, really. My understanding was that it wasn't working mostly because at the time they thought it was because the D-Wave qubits didn't have quite enough coherence. And Hartman's thought was that because John's university team had made high coherence qubits, that maybe if he brought in John, John could, John and his students and postdocs could build a quantum annealer of the sort that D-Wave was trying to make, but that maybe it would work better if we had higher coherence. That was the idea. And, you know, that's not how it panned out. We, we tried annealers for a couple of years and kind of determined that it's really, really hard. And we already knew how to do gate-based quantum computing. So we focused on that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll get onto that later. I say, you know, what Google's current approach is. Okay, so you mentioned that in this, this graduate course, you learn about how a macroscopic system could behave quantum mechanically. Mm-hmm. So when was the first time you actually heard about quantum computing? Wow, I don't remember. It must have been at Yale as an undergrad. It was either in that course or you know in a physics department colloquium or something like that, but I don't have a specific memory of the first time I heard about quantum computing. Okay, but I'm sure you remember being incredibly confused by the idea. I think I think most people feel that when they first hear about it. So maybe could could you think about how knowing what you know now, you would explain to yourself back then what quantum computing, uh, how it is, and what uh, how it works. It's an interesting thing to think about. I think probably like so many things related to quantum mechanics, I would actually start by making sure that my younger self understood regular computing in the right way first to make sure that I understood that I would be able to understand quantum computing at all. (laughs) So the way I, I mean, the way I like to explain quantum computing is like this. Regular computing is something that in the typical paradigm takes place in a state machine. You have a register of bits and at each step of a computation, the state of those bits changes in some way by applying logic gates like AND and NAND and NOR and all this kind of stuff. Although, of course, what's really going on inside of an x86 CPU is not necessarily really those gates happening at each step, but you, it's at least conceptually equivalent. So quantum computing is the same thing. It's just that the states are quantum states instead of classical states. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. I think if somebody had explained quantum computing to me like that at the beginning, it would have probably been a little bit easier. However, I was so confused about quantum mechanics back then that I'm not sure how much that really would have helped. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was still so, and I'm still confused about this. Uh, the fact that quantum states collapse when you measure them is really strange. And it doesn't really make any sense because you know, the, in quantum mechanics, we say that everything is unitary until you observe it. And then it's not. And it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, what's an observation? No one can really tell you. 
you can kind of wave your hands and make some statements that make sense. But that's still a, an aspect of quantum mechanics that is weird. It's the only aspect of quantum mechanics that's really weird, mm. in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how much I could have convinced, you know, 22 year old me that quantum computing really made a lot of sense, but I, that's how I would have tried to do it. Yeah. That, I think that's, that's a good point. Um, I mean, personally, I know nothing, knew nothing about classical computing and sort of got pushing at the deep end, trying to figure out what quantum computing was. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're completely right. It, it all started making a lot more sense to me when I, uh, I read Feynman's lectures on computation. Um, I think that should be a starting point for people who want to learn quantum computing. Yeah, get your head around classical first. There's probably a reason why they teach you classical physics before they teach you quantum physics. And maybe it should yeah. be the same way with computing. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's actually quite funny. Um, I remember being really puzzled by quantum mechanics and eigenvalues and all this business until I read uh, Ramamurti Shankar's quantum book. And the first hundred pages of that book actually doesn't talk about quantum mechanics at all. It's, it's all about linear algebra because he wants to make sure that you understand what all these things mean and why they show up in physics in the first place before he starts talking about quantum mechanics. I always thought that was really great. Also stresses why, you know, we need to have people from a wide range of backgrounds coming to this, this field, you know, not just people from physics. I, I remember I gave a, a talk to the, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Google office on quantum computing about two years ago or a year and a half ago. And so that audience was mostly programmers, you know, software engineers, uh, computer scientists. And uh, I used the state machine analogy and drew some pictures because, you know, you can you can draw a classical computer algorithm. You can represent it as linear algebra if you really want to. You can draw the the vector of classical bits and you can draw your uh, your classical gates as a lookup table, which is just literally a matrix. And you can talk about classical computation as matrix algebra if you really want to. It's not commonly done, but it works perfectly fine. And once you've convinced the audience that that makes sense, to the step to quantum mechanics is just saying, well, believe it or not, if you have the right physical system, the numbers in this matrix can be complex and in particular negative, which means that you get interference effects and mm. Really, not that mysterious at that point. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps we need to start teaching linear algebra to to school kids. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, why do you think quantum computing is important, and what benefits do you think it will bring to society? Well, yeah, I think I can answer that on probably three different levels. The first one is, yeah. you know, pretty much every time we've managed to bring a working principle of physics into the realm of technology. It's done something interesting. Um, I mean, combustion is useful for making cars and, uh, you know, coherent laser light turned out to be really useful for information storage and retrieval, but nobody knew that when it was first invented. Um, although actually people at Bell Labs figured that out pretty Bell Labs and others figured that out, figured that one out pretty quickly. But still, you know, messing around in the physics lab and harnessing new working principles of things is, has always turned out to be useful. So it's it would stretch my imagination to believe that quantum computing wouldn't be useful. But on top of that, uh, you know, we already know, we already strongly believe that if you want to simulate a complicated quantum system, that's probably going to be much more feasible with a quantum computer than without one. 
And a lot of things are quantum systems. Like people talk about biology, chemistry problems, really anything where you have a lot of atoms interacting with each other. So if you had a, a real full-scale quantum computer, if it turned out that you could understand, um, you know, catalysts in a much deeper way than we do now and engineer better ones that could save huge amounts of energy and, and reduce greenhouse gas output in fertilizer production and things like that. That would be obviously useful. The other thing from my point of view also on top of both of those, and I would say this is less important, but to be honest, it's probably a big part of the reason that I'm in the field uh, we've never seen in nature a large coherent quantum state. It's just never existed. And so creating one is, it's, to me, it's actually a little bit like uh, creating Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You're taking something that's really not supposed to exist in nature. It, it's not supposed to be alive and, and breathing life into it. Create, creating and stabilizing a large quantum state is in some sense, un, it's like unnatural life. And I think mm. that's Cool. That's cool. I've never, I've never heard anyone say that before. And usually, everyone does the whole. It'll stop climate change. It'll fix the fertilizer problem. Yeah, I mean, will it really stop climate change? I don't know. I think that's that's an optimistic view of quantum computing, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's the right way to look at this kind of thing. But it, you know, I don't think we should look at that as a promise. Mm, I think yeah. it's a possibility, and it's a really, really compelling one, and we should hope that it happens yeah for sure yeah okay so maybe maybe now we can start talking about the uh quantum supremacy paper from a couple of years ago sure so could you start off maybe explain what quantum supremacy is and yeah. maybe briefly explain how your experiment worked and what you showed yeah so the basic I'll say the definition of quantum supremacy that we adopted, and there's been a whole discussion about what quantum, what the phrase quantum supremacy should mean, or there's even been arguments about whether we should ever use the phrase quantum supremacy. So let's just skip that and say what we took that to mean is you find a well-defined algorithmic problem that a quantum computer can solve and a classical computer cannot. If that is done, then you say you have demonstrated quantum supremacy. Okay, so what problem did we actually demonstrate? The problem was to produce samples from a particular probability distribution. And that probab probability distribution was defined as the output of a certain quantum algorithm. So I realize this sounds a little weird, but that is a perfectly legitimate way to define a probability distribution. Because if I start with a bunch of quantum bits in their ground state, and I run them through a bunch of quantum gates, what I get at the end is a quantum state, a quantum wave function or a quantum state. And if I measure it, I get a sequence of classical bits. But every time I measure it, I'm going to get a different sequence, you know, if this thing is in a superposition state. So that's a very quantum centered way to look at it. But you could also just look at that, look at it and say, oh, that's a bunch of linear algebra that produces a probability distribution at the output. So you can also kind of take a classical view of it and just say, yeah, th this is just a probability distribution. I can simulate it on a laptop and get samples. Anyway, that's how we defined the problem. And it turned out that in the case that we chose, actually running that quantum circuit on a quantum chip was possible. And we were able to get 
outputs, whereas simulating it on a classical computer turned out to be completely infeasible because it was too complex of a quantum algorithm. So in that way, we claimed that we had demonstrated quantum supremacy. Yeah, what you said at the start about the definition, I think, was a really big problem, especially when you originally gave us the, the lecture in, in December 2020. And so I, I think back then, what I at least thought supremacy was, was we've done something really useful and we could do it on a quantum chip, but there's no way we could ever do it on a classical chip, at least not in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that is now under the label quantum advantage is something what uh, I, I want to say useful, but obviously everyone's definition of useful is going to be different, but something like Grover's or Shaw's algorithm. Yeah, we never, we certainly never claimed that the, we never claimed that the probability distribution that we were drawing from in that experiment had any practical use. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that certainly makes the experiment less interesting than it would have been if that distribution had been useful. Mm. But it certainly was interesting that we had done anything at all that couldn't yeah. be done in a classical machine because that had never been done before. Yeah. And, you know, when people ask me about this experiment and why did we do it and why was it important? One of the things to keep in mind is that that experiment was done on 53 qubits. And not only was the qubit number kind of an, in a new scale of things, but the accuracy of the, the interactions between the qubits, the quantum gates and the readout was better than anything that had ever been done at that scale before. Mm -hmm. So for the hardware team at Google, doing that experiment was at least in part motivated, it was at least in part interesting because it motivated us to solve all the technical problems we had to solve to make a bigger system. And we know that we have to make bigger systems in order to make a real quantum computer. Yeah. Yeah. You said one of the things that got you interested into quantum was the idea that, you know, a circuit can be quantum, which I, I guess is what the superconducting qubits are based on. So I was wondering, could you just perhaps briefly explain to us how exactly a superconducting qubit works? Uh, so I think what you're asking is because there can be two levels to this question. The first question is how do you get a, an electrical circuit to behave quantum mechanically at all? And then from there, how do you turn that into something that is like a bit and has two levels that you can use for computation? Would that be a fair way to break this down? Yeah, I, I suppose so. Yeah. I guess how do we engineer a circuit to behave like a, a two level system is my question. Okay. Okay. So the first thing is, what do you have to do to an electrical circuit so that it's, so that it is a quantum mechanical thing that has discrete energy levels and all this stuff you learn about in an undergraduate course? What do you have to do to, to get it so that you can describe it by a, by a quantum Hamiltonian on a piece of paper and, and see Robbie oscillations yeah. and that kind of thing? I think the, the key concept is actually to understand what makes things not quantum. You know, we believe that everything in the universe is described by quantum mechanics fundamentally, but we don't see it. It's not in our face in daily experience. So why not? Um, and the basic, I think the best way to explain that is that we're surrounded by decoherence. And what does that word mean? Well, if you have a quantum system and it interacts with a bunch of other stuff, the, the information 
that's contained in that quantum system is leaking away. And I, I remember I once heard um, Professor Zeilinger, Anton Zeilinger, say that quantum mechanics is actually a theory of information more than anything else. And I think he's right. If you have a quantum system and it interacts with another quantum system, so you have quantum system A, and it comes and it physically interacts with quantum system B, and quantum system B goes away somewhere, like maybe it's a photon that comes and interacts with some quantum system and then leaves. If it carries off any information about the thing it interacted with, the, the remaining system that you're looking at will have lost some of its quantumness. There's this funny thing in quantum mechanics where you can't copy information. So if information is taken away, it's kind of gone and, and the quantum mechanics is, is, is disappearing. So in daily life, when there's light, basic light and air molecules and everything's interacting all the time, we don't see quantum mechanics because the, the coherence needed for quantum mechanics is leaking away and going all over the place. So in a normal electrical circuit, this is happening as well. The electrons are flowing through the metal. They're scattering off of the ion cores in the metal and creating heat, which you have learned about. It's called joule heating. And so the sort of capacity for a normal electrical circuit to be quantum mechanics is, is reduced. It's basically not there at all. But it turns out that if you use a superconducting metal, then the electrons flowing through the metal don't scatter with anything. They're actually, they sort of just hum along in unison and there's no, there's no physical information leaking away anywhere. There's no heat leaving the circuit. It's, it's quiet and everything's sort of calm and stable. So as soon as you make a circuit superconducting, it, it's like 90% of the way there to being quantum mechanical. So that's the first step. We make electrical circuits out of aluminum and we cool them down to um, 20 millikelvin which is uh, roughly, it's about a hundred times colder than the cosmic microwave background, which is, which is kind of amazing. So you cool them down, it's superconducting and, and now you're, you're most of the way there. And then you just have to sort of tailor the values of the capacitance and the inductances in the circuit so that it's, its potential energy has a shape that produces the right discrete energy levels that you want in order to make it into a qubit. And, and how you tailor those energy levels is kind of the whole discipline of what we are kind of now calling quantum engineering or you know, quantum electrical engineering. We, we like to make up these, these titles. And that's, that's, a most of, that's a lot of what we do, at, not most, but that's a lot of what we do at Google is choosing the right circuit parameters to get the quantum mechanical structure that's good for computing. So at Google, I suppose you're, you're pursuing sort of transmon qubits, aren't you? Yeah. It's, do you think that that, um, that is the way to go for superconducting qubits? Do you think there's maybe other prototypes out there that may... Well, yeah. I mean, so far they seem to work. Um, yeah. They work surprisingly, not surprisingly well, but they work really well. They have, they're a good balance between maintaining their quantum coherence for a long time but also being good for interacting with each other and processing information. There's this um, idea, I think actually John Martinez coined this term. This is this idea of neutrino qubits. It's actually not that hard to make a qubit that has insanely long coherence time, but is very hard to couple to other qubits. And so we call that, that's the neutrino limit. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other limit is... Uh, you know, like classical bits, which are really easy to connect together. You can have, you know, millions upon millions of them in a CPU, but they're not quantum mechanical at all. And so to build a quantum computer, you have to, you have to land somewhere in the middle. 
there are other very interesting qubit ideas out there. And I can tell you that the Google group keeps up on the literature and we even fund um, academic research into those other qubit types because they're promising and they, they could turn out to be much better. All right, interesting, thank you. So I guess that leads me on to my next question. So the, the DiVincenzo criteria, I guess that quite old now, like 20 years ago when DiVincenzo first thought them up. But um, do you think, do, do superconducting qubits, I guess specifically transforms, do they satisfy all of these criteria? Um, I think so, but I'm gonna have to remember what they are. Yeah, so. okay, I've, I've got them written, written down. So yes, scalability, yeah. ability to initialize. Initialize, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, long decoherence times, yep. universal set quantum gates, and yep. measure, um, measurement capability. Okay, good. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. So uh, initialization, yeah, we've got that covered. It's pretty easy to get the qubits to go into their ground state. Scalability um, is, I don't want to say that we've proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt, because, you know, the biggest chips in the field are now on the order of 100 qubits, kind of that neighborhood. And you, you need probably around a 1,000 times more than that to do something really interesting, although that number seems to be changing over the years. So are they scalable? Well, yeah. I mean, we've managed to go from 1 to 4 to 10 to 50 without huge changes to the architecture we do expect to have to solve some technical problems in going you know the next orders of magnitude up but we think it's possible so that's scalability um measurement yeah measurement works we have reasonably high accuracy measurement we can we're kind of in the 98 to 99 percent accuracy level for measurement which is which is pretty good. It's getting it's getting to the point where it's getting to where we would need it to be for full fault tolerant quantum computation. Uh, what was the other one? Interaction, and uh, yeah, universal set of quantum gates. Yeah, universal set of quantum gates. So okay, that one that's a really interesting one. We can do. We can easily do all the single qubit gates necessary. That's just completely trivial. But two qubit gates are where it gets interesting. We have a pretty high fidelity controlled Z gate, um, which is all you need, actually. If you have arbitrary single qubit gates and a control Z, if, if I'm correct, that's a full universal set. However, that's for physical qubits. And when you want to actually do fault-tolerant quantum computation, you have to do error correction. Uh, it turns out that in order to do fully fault-tolerant or error-corrected computation, you have to be able to do the control Z or, or a controlled knot, either one, on your, on your logical qubits. So that's a group of physical qubits that are behaving as a single error-corrected qubit. And that we know how to do. The interesting thing is that doing arbitrary single qubit gates on a logical qubit is not so trivial. And demonstrating that we can do that will be a very interesting milestone. I don't, I, we have no reason to believe that this is impossible, but it requires, uh, it, it, to be specific, it requires feedback. You have to be able to react to your measurement results and use that to inform what you do next on the quantum computer. And at Google, we haven't done that yet. Other research groups have started to demonstrate feedback um, 
in sort of proof of principle experiments. So we think it's all going to work, but we have to show it. I think the Thank last you. one was coherence time. Ah, coherence time. Well, that, that's a funny one. I don't necessarily agree that that should be its own um, criterion simply because the reason you need coherence time is so that you can do quantum gates and measurement with high accuracy. So if you've already shown that your coherence time is by definition good enough. Mm. Um, yeah. I will comment that coherence time is a very interesting aspect of superconducting qubits because, you know, on our team, uh, our coherence times are okay, but they're not spectacular. But we believe that so far we think that the reason is that we have these large qubit systems. Meanwhile, there are academic and other industrial groups that have shown that a single qubit by itself, and in some cases, small groups of qubits, can have really enormous coherence. And one of the things that we're looking forward to over the next few years is understanding where in making the larger system are we losing some of the coherence and can we get it back? And it's really fantastic that we have the experiments from the other uh, industrial and academic teams showing where the ceiling is because it's letting us know that there's we have a lot of room. There's a lot of uh, room at the top for us. It's very encouraging to know that. Do, do you think the, the DiVincenzo criteria, do you think they're still relevant today? Do you think that perhaps the, the goalposts have, have changed for you know, building a scalable quantum computer? I, I mean, I think, I think they line up pretty well with what you need to build yeah. a scalable quantum computer, with my one caveat being that coherence being its own criterion mm. is a little funny, but, you know. So I guess that leads on to our next question. Yeah, you talked about um, we need to sort of keep these qubits really cold. I suppose that's to protect them from, from thermal noise. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you protect the Sycamore chip from various um, mm -hmm. types of noise. Yeah. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The, um, the energy spacing between the ground and excited state of the transmons that we use is typically around um, Planck's constant times five or six gigahertz. And... Um, in a, a useful number to know is that one gigahertz. Oh, geez. Wow. Now I'm going to, I guarantee you, I'm going to say this number wrong because it's a podcast. If I remember correctly, one gigahertz is 40 mil, uh, 50 millikelvin. I think that's right. Uh, so what that's telling you is that if you have, if you had a one gigahertz qubit, you would need the, the surrounding temperature to be significantly below 50 millikelvin in order to keep it nice and coherent. Um, so we're at five gigahertz and we're at about 20 millikelvin. So we're, we're significantly below the, the thermal threshold there. And, and that's why we put these qubits in dilution refrigerators because they can get cold enough. So that's the first, the first sort of layer of defense for the qubit is to put it in something that's sufficiently cold. But we do a lot of other stuff. Uh, it's not, it would be bad to have um, magnetic field drift on the qubit chip. So we the, the qubit is surrounded by actually a couple of layers of magnetic shielding. We also have uh, a variety of filters on the control wires that go to the qubits. And that's really important. Um, coaxial cables can carry infrared radiation and infrared radiation is high enough frequency that if it hits the qubit chip, it can break the superconducting Cooper pairs and create quasi particles, which lowers the coherence. So infrared filters have been important. Actually, I remember 
<laughs> I was a grad student when our lab kind of finally realized that we had been limiting ourselves due to infrared radiation. And when we started fixing that problem, things got a lot better. It was very exciting. So there are, to review, there's cold temperature, magnetic shielding, infrared shielding. There's also just plain old electrical filters because, you know, the, the control equipment that generates the pulses that control the qubits have, you know, digital clocks on them and that can create tones at harmonics of the clock frequency and those tones can do things to the qubits that you don't want. So we filter that stuff away in conventional, using conventional electronic filters. Um, and the last thing is that the refrigerator, the, the dilution refrigerator housing the qubit is designed to be mechanically isolated from the surroundings. So if a truck drives by on the highway and the floor vibrates a little bit, the refrigerators are designed to decouple that from the qubits, at least to some degree. That's all making me very glad that I'm a, a theory student and not an experimentalist. It sounds uh, like a lot to a lot to juggle at once. Yeah, um, I mean, so a couple of minutes ago, you was mentioned about how you'd gone from I think you said four to ten to now fifty qubits of yeah. well, it was fifty four qubits on the Sycamore chip. Um, fifty four might seem like a weird number to some people, especially if they're hearing the word computing and quantum computing, and they've heard of eight bits, sixteen bits, thirty two bits. So. Mm -hmm. How, how and why did you arrive at a 54 qubit chip? That number was basically a compromise between, it, it was enough qubits that we, based on calculations and simulations, thought that we would be able to do quantum supremacy um, while still being small enough that we could support that number of qubits without having to solve every scaling problem in the field all at once. So we had to solve some problems. We had to make the package had to get a lot more, um, a lot larger. And actually the, the technology we used for the, the actual apparatus that houses the qubit chip had to change completely. In some sense, that was the biggest change, the biggest hardware change. But, you know, actually every time we go to a higher number of qubits, we also discover that our software is not performant enough and we have to go find like where are all the slow points in the software stack and fix them. So it, you know, it required fixing some things, but not everything. So it was, it was the right compromise for that experiment. Okay. So, um, qubit number is something that a lot, I think a lot of people, me especially think is one of the main metrics about how a quantum computer is, is going to perform. Mm -hmm. Um, could you maybe, maybe talk about some other things that we need to think about when we think about how good is this, this quantum computer going to be? Right. So, so first let's establish why, let's establish why number of qubits is important and then why it's not the only important thing. Sure. So number of bits is important in any computer because it tells you how much memory you have. If you had a classical computer with only 50 bits, you would not be able to play Starcraft. Um, so similarly, a quantum computer needs enough bits to to hold the problem that you're trying to solve. So 54 is 50. Well, actually it's interesting. It's actually quite interesting. 54 f like perfectly ideal quantum bits would actually already be amazingly interesting because you, you would be able to do things with that that are far beyond the capabilities of a classical computer. But I mentioned before this idea of error correction though, quantum bits are imperfect. And so, 
we the approach that we're pursuing involves using groups of imperfect bits to encode one much more perfect bit. And that, that encoding is called error correction or fault tolerance. And the, the more perfect bit that's represented by the, the many imperfect bits is called a logical qubit. Um, so you need, the reason that we need, that we think we need lots and lots of qubits, like a hundred thousand or a million is simply that there's a lot of overhead in that encoding, like maybe a thousand to one. So if we had a million physical qubits, that might be equivalent to only a thousand logical qubits. So that, that's where the numbers kind of come in. Now, the reason that numbers isn't, aren't enough is that if I gave you a billion so-called qubits with no quantum coherence, they, then you would call that a classical computer, which is not what we're trying to build, <laughs> right? So qubit number is not enough. You know, when you see press releases that say group XYZ built a chip with a thousand qubits on it, uh, okay, What's the coherence time and how good are the quantum gates? You, you yeah. have to ask that question because when they say it's a thousand qubits, it could be a thousand classical bits yeah. <laughs> until you know the numbers. You just, you just don't know. So that's why, num that's why qubit number is not enough. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. So we've just talked about how qubits are the, maybe they are the most important thing, but they're not the only important thing, but I mean, they definitely are a very important thing, right? So, how do we expect the number of qubits on a superconducting chip to increase as a function of time? And do you think we'll get lucky and get something similar to Moore's law from classical computing? Oh boy. Maybe with a much lower number in the exponent. So first of all, let's, let's just refine this a little bit. If the number of qubits kept going up even exponentially in a Moore's law way, that's only good if the coherence and mm -hmm. you know if the quality of the gates doesn't go down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so look, I guess we can ask. Okay, do do I personally think that we'll have exponential growth in qubit number with a with while maintaining gate accuracy? My guess is that that will happen, much like what has happened with classical computing. My guess is that that will happen for a while and then it will stop. Yeah. Uh, now you're going to ask me at what number do I think it will stop? Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know man. <laughs> like, this is research. If, if we knew what the hell we were doing, we wouldn't call it research, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, is the growth going to be really exponential as a function of chronological time? I, who knows? Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that that question gets uh, you, you can get tired of that question quite quickly. When it's not that it's we're, tired. we're at the start of the exponential, right? So it's it's minimal gains, but in the long run, we'll see that it is fitting a nice exponential. It's just impossible to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dan, do you want to move on? Right. Yeah. So so now I want to talk about the uh, the wiring. So you mentioned that you need sort of a bunch of coaxial cables to make the interface between the, the chip and the control electronics. I think, yeah, yeah the, the first thing that strikes you when you see the, the experiment for the Sycamore um, yeah. chip is just a huge array of wires. Yeah. I was wondering, so if this, what it, if this is what it looks like for 53 qubits, how is it going to look for future chips? Yeah, you guys have really done your homework. This is a really, really good question. Um, if you talk to an experimentalist in superconducting qubits and ask them like, what are the hard things to scale? A lot of them are going to say the wiring. 
Yeah. Because yeah, you're absolutely right. When you look at one of our cryostats, there's this tiny little box with a qubit chip in the bottom. And then the entire rest of the thing is a giant bundle of columns. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that has, that stuff has to all get way smaller and we're working on it. And there, I mean, there are even uh, commercial companies. There's, there's um, a relatively successful one in Europe right now uh, selling dense micro like strips of dense microwave wiring that are much 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 smaller than coaxial cable much denser and that's great you know that's that's the industry responding to the needs of the of the field which is which is awesome uh yeah that's all gonna have to change there's been some really interesting discussion about whether or not you could get the control signals into the qubits through an optical link so the idea would be that you send the information over a fiber down to the cold stage of the cryostat. And then only there do you turn that into microwave signals to control the qubits. And so that would cut out a lot of the wiring. Hmm. And briefly, the reason, the reasons that wiring are troubling are the thing we already mentioned, the space, you know, you just eventually just run out of space. Uh, they're heavy. You know, the cryostat can only support so much weight and they conduct a lot of heat. Uh, and you don't want that heat getting into the qubits. So you have to figure out how to, how to mitigate that problem. So the optical link is interesting because optical links can carry huge amounts of information. Uh, they conduct almost no heat. I mean, a fiber optic conducts basically no heat com compared to a metal coaxial cable. But there are problems with that idea. You know, con converting the optical signal to microwaves is a dissipative process that creates heat. And so you kind of have to pay back what you gained in, in using the fiber. But that idea is very interesting. They're, there's actually even a, a U.S. government uh, project on pursuing that idea. There's the, I already mentioned, there's the like very dense like strips of microwave cable that people call that flex lines or, or there's, there's different names for that. And, uh, you know, we're keeping our tabs on all of them. We're working on flex wiring ourselves because we think that's a pretty good solution. Does Google sort of work on all of these components at Google researching, you know, how can we get these, these wires, you know, more densely packed, or is it something, do you wait for other companies to come along and design them for Google? We usually try to do a little of both, um, for a, there's a couple of reasons to do that. So it is uncommon that a commercial company can understand and then solve a niche requirement of superconducting qubits without any input from the pe from the people who need to buy the product. So having some in-house experience is important because it allows us to talk to vendors and communicate what the needs really are. That's one level. The other level is sometimes we just wind up making stuff ourselves. Like for example, the quantum limited, uh, very low noise amplifiers that we use in readout, we make those because there's nowhere to buy them. You just, you just can't. I mean, you, you actually, it is possible to pay money for them, but you pay way more than than you would if you if we make them ourselves and it, the number of zeros that we hack off by making them ourselves turns out to be worth it in that case so there are cases like that too with the wiring i i would say that probably most of us expect that we will eventually be buying wiring from a company that's not google uh, but we are doing research into wiring ourselves for the reasons that i mentioned before so you just mentioned that the one of the problems with the wiring is you run out of space. Is this yeah. 
to do with the shape of the chip. So you've got your qubits on a flat rectangle or square, and you can only really connect to those qubits in that plane as well. So you're kind of missing out on the entire third dimension there. So is there any way, is, is it feasible to change the shape of the chip into something that allows you to connect wires in the third dimension in some way? Yeah, let me just, yeah, what you're saying is th this question is very good. Right now, the way it works is actually that we have the chip and the qubits are arranged in a square. And actually the control wires are only brought in on the perimeter. And that is obviously not scalable because as you increase the number of qubits, the area goes up as the number of qubits squared, but the perimeter goes up proportional to the number of qubits. So you just will, you, you simply run out of space. Yeah. So then as you just suggested, you start imagining, well, what if I could, instead of bringing the control signals in around the perimeter of my qubit patch, what if I could bring the signals directly down onto that square of qubits? And that, that idea has been pursued by the superconducting qubit field um, quite seriously. Um, and I think everyone kind of sees that that's going to have to be how it goes. We haven't used that. We didn't use that in the quantum supremacy experiment. In the quantum supremacy experiment, the signals all came in on the perimeter. But, you know, we see the future. We see where it has to go. And that's... yeah one of the problems, one of the changes to the architecture that we're going to have to make. Now you asked about changing the shape of the chip. That's a very interesting question. Uh, it may happen. I know that for example, uh, Lincoln lab in Massachusetts, uh, East coast of the U S has demonstrated that they can make vias going through a silicon wafer to the other side and connect to their qubits. So they're already demonstrating that they can they can kind of do this thing where they're bringing in the signals in that third dimension. So yeah. the proofs of the principle are already starting to crop up, and probably will do will do something like that in the future by you know taking the best things that have been reported in the scientific literature and adapting them to our system. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so I guess um, Google you've sort of gone for like a, a monolithic approach. Where you know you just have your, your single chip. Do you do you think there's like a limit to the number of qubits you can fit on a single chip? Do you think you'll eventually need to go to like maybe a distributed approach where you have multiple processors? I, I would say that that's. I would say that that's. It's likely that we'll have to modularize things, um, for a variety of reasons. One of which is that if you look at how big a transmon qubit is, or at least our transmon qubits and you estimate the size that you would need for a fault-tolerant quantum computer, it's pretty big and it it's big enough that it makes it starts to make sense that you would want to chop that size up into smaller pieces uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, it would make the, it would pr almost certainly make the fabrication easier. Um, but beyond that, you know, if the yield isn't perfect, it's nice to be able to say, test submodules and pick ones that have the best yield and then assemble them into a fully working system. That that's one reason you might want to do something like that. So yield fabricate, you know, ease of fabrication and reproducibility and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very likely that we'll have to go in that direction. And that's an interesting, that brings up an interesting problem, which is how do you connect qubits that are on different chips? 
it's not completely obvious how to do that, but it's also probably not impossible. I was thinking about this earlier. So you said that uh, to make a logical qubit, we need about a thousand qubits, a thousand physical qubits. So let's say we can only fit 500 physical qubits on a chip. So that means that to make a logical qubit, we need to, we need to use two chips. So would it, would it be more difficult? Um, so let's say you've figured out how to connect the two chips. Is there going to be any difference in kind of more spatially, um, having the qubits more spatially distributed along those two chips, assuming that you've got uh, a quantum channel between the two chips? Uh, what do you mean by more spatially distributed? Uh, just, just literally being further apart. If you've got instead of one big chip, uh, two two chips oh. further apart, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can't think of a reason that the physical separation would help. I mean, I think the the big challenge with having qubits on multiple chips is going to be what you just called the quantum channel and how you physically build that. And more likely than not, space would work against you in that. Okay. I guess it'll be a trade-off at the end of the day, won't it? You know, I, I suppose. Do, do you think that there's maybe? Um, I don't know. I suppose. What, what are some of the big trade-offs you think you'll have to consider when you know, when trying to scale up these systems? Uh, the trade-offs. Well, the the two kinds of things that go wrong so far as we make the systems larger that can go down. And when you have, really, when you have more than one qubit, you have crosstalk. And there's a variety of kinds of crosstalk. One kind is I try to do, I, it, you know, I try to control one qubit to do something, but its neighbor hears a little bit of that control signal and, and under, undergoes a transformation that I didn't want. Another kind of crosstalk is that chips that are adjacent to each other might interact either when, maybe when I don't want them to, or even in a diagonal neighboring qubits, which are never supposed to interact, might interact a little bit. Uh, so those kinds of problems can, in some sense, can only get worse as you make the, the chip bigger. And, you know, another kind of problem that can arise is that as the size of the chip goes up, you can actually wind up with resonant microwave modes in, in the package or on the chip qubits in ways that you don't want. I'm not super worried about that, though, because they're pretty reasonably well understood methods of suppressing those kinds of things. So I don't I don't anticipate unwanted microwave modes being they'll certainly appear at some point and we'll have to deal with. So I would say that, I mean, really, the trade off is always just that the bigger you make the system, the less like an ideal single qubit, the whole thing behaves and you have to you have to keep finding out in which ways it's finding to misbehave and sort of discipline the chip and, you know, get rid of the bad behavior. It's not, I, it's funny. I, it's not quite a trade-off so much as it's kind of like just learning what kinds of things can go wrong. And Right. Did you have anything in particular in mind with that? Yeah, I, I guess maybe that there's lots of different approaches to scaling up. Um, you know, yeah, like I was, I was talking about, you know, like you can go the monolithic approach or, you know, distributed. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And perhaps, you know, each of those methods, um, you know, like one method might have disadvantages that the other doesn't. I don't know. I was, I was wondering if there may be other things, similar things you, you, you'd need to consider when you're trying to scale up your system. Mm. Yeah, I think in monolithic versus modular, the trade-off there is that interconnecting between chips may turn out to be difficult. And that's going to have to be balanced against just really how big can you make a monolithic qubit chip. And by the way, um, you'll sometimes hear proposals for making the superconducting qubits smaller or some other architectures cite the fact that the qubits are very small as an advantage because, for example, because you could have like a million qubits on a small chip. That there is a big trade-off there, which is that if your qubits are smaller, the wiring density problem becomes more difficult to solve. So actually, in our minds, the fact that transmons are actually kind of big is good because it means that we have room to bring the wires in. So that's an important trade-off. The difficulty of solving the wiring problem versus how big your qubits are and how big the whole either multi-modular or monolithic chip has to be. That that's definitely a trade-off. That's a trade-off that spans architectures, though, more more so than sort of something that we'll have to deal with with transmons. Although, actually, no. Now, having said that, there's actually there was just some uh, re some papers recently about uh, much smaller transmons. So maybe that idea is coming into superconducting qubits now. That'll be interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay. So, so one last question about the um, the supremacy ex experiment you did. I was wondering. If you could think back to the time when you were doing this experiment, was there like a specific moment that you realized you'd, you'd achieved quantum supremacy? Uh, and what, what was the atmosphere like at work at that time? <laughs> well, was there a specific moment? Um, kind of. It was, boy, was that, that was such an interesting adventure. We, you know, we spent, I forget how long it was, like a year and a half trying to get that experiment to work. And eventually we did. But there, there was actually a false, a kind of a false start at one point where, or a false finish, where we'd been doing the experiment. We had data. It was looking really good. And then somebody on our team realized that because of the order that we had done the, the quantum gates, the problem had a symmetry that could be exploited to make the classical simulation so much easier that it wouldn't be quantum supremacy. <laughs> and fortunately, and this is one of the benefits, one of the benefits of many architectures of quantum computing, uh, superconducting qubits being one of them, that fixing that was really just a question of changing a few lines of code somewhere to do the quantum gates in a different order. Uh, so we were able to, to clean up that problem relatively easily. But, you know, it, it was, it's, it's like, you know, real life is kind of like that, especially an experiment where, you know, you get some data and you're like, oh, maybe this is the data set. And you're kind of thinking, you know, this, this might be it. This might be it. It's looking good. It's looking good. Oh, no, no. We completely screwed up. This is totally wrong. <laughs> we, hold on, guys. Hang on. Hang on. Let's, let's do this again. Right. You know, it, this, especially in experimental physics, it's, it's always like this. I mean, we joke within the team a lot that, an experimentalist is constantly thinking about what could go wrong. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've never done particle physics, but it's got to be the same, right? Like you think you've measured some new dipole moment of a, a magnetic dipole moment of a particle that's not supposed to have it. 
and you know, is this real, guys? You know, did <laughs> is, is, is the oscilloscope plugged in? You know, is, is it actually happening? Remember, remember, like ten years ago, there was this report that maybe some neutrinos had traveled faster than light. I mean, for sure, the people doing that experiment were like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> is this real?" Hang on a second, and it turned out in the end it wasn't real. You know, like, there was there was a mistake. I think with a there was some timing signal or a clock signal that was not properly set up. I, I forget the details, but it's always like that. So, so to answer your question, there wasn't really this one distinct turning point where we went, "Hurrah, we're done," and, and everything's fine. You know, it was like let's cross all the T's, let's dot all the I's, let's really make sure. And then it was actually by the end of that. It was kind of like we all came into the lab one day and went, wait, so so we're done? Huh. Okay. Uh, hmm, where's Chris? We should go pat him on the back. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right. Thank so you. What are yeah. we gonna do next? Like, what are we going to do next, guys? Like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about so the, the group at Google is called um, Google Quantum AI. Yeah. Um, so so where does this name come from? So let me start off by saying that I'm not sure. I I think I think it's the, it comes from the fact that the guy who started the team, Hartman Nevin, um, was was and is compelled by the idea that because a quantum computer might be able to solve minimization or optimization problems much faster than a classical computer that they might be well suited to AI applications where you have, you know, a large, let's say, for example, a large set of training data and you want to get something that could be a quantum neural network uh, to recognize, you know, make a decision problem on data, data of that kind. It may be possible to do the training part much faster on a class on a quantum computer than you could on a classical computer. So, I think the idea was, at, especially at the beginning, that one of the main applications of quantum computing that, that we would have in mind as we developed our system would be AI. Um, and it's interesting, you know, that that's remained the case that that's one of the applications we have in mind, but we've also really put uh, a strong consideration on chemistry also and have uh, computational chemists in the team uh, looking for applications of quantum computing there too. So the name AI is maybe a little historical, but it does reflect one of the applications we have in mind, but not all of them. Yeah, so we, I think you've mentioned a little bit about error correction, but could we maybe just spend a couple of minutes now uh, going through what, error, what quantum error correction is and why we need to do it? Yeah. So let's, let's in, in the theme of one of our themes of this podcast, let's go back to classical error correction. <laughs> so suppose I have a computer and every now and then one of the bits just randomly flips because a cosmic ray hits it or something. So that would, you know, usually that's fine because if it's, if that bit is representing the color of a pixel on your monitor and it momentarily flips, who cares? You won't even notice. But if it's your bank account, and that bit represents the most significant digit, then it flipping could either be the best day of your life or the worst day of your life. So, so you know, if your computing is in classical computing, if you have a case where memory reliability is really, really important, 
you don't want to just cross your fingers and hope. So the, the probability for a bit to flip in a conventional computer is actually pretty low, but there's a lot of bits and there's a lot of, a lot of operations happening. So they do happen. Bit errors absolutely do happen. I think I remember reading once, for example, that the, like the specified error rate for an ethernet connection is like one bit in 10 to the 14. So that's pretty low, but if you're on a gigabit ethernet connection and you've got a billion users, you know, now you've well, crossed that, that. You've now crossed that number by a lot. So, so bit errors happen. Okay, so what do you do about it? So a very simple thing you could do, this, this isn't exactly how, how it works in reality, but it's close enough. You could just add another bit. So it, let's say you had one byte, which is eight bits. You could add a ninth bit and you would use it as a parity check. And what I mean by that is every time you modify the state of your eight bits, your byte, you would also modify that ninth bit so that the parity of all nine bits is, let's say, always even. There's always an even number of one. And the reason you do this is that if there is a single bit error, then the parity goes from even to odd. And now you know that there's a mistake. So if you were in the middle of doing like a bank transaction and you check your parity and you see that it's wrong, then you would say, cancel this transaction, tell the user there's an error and start over. So that's a way to catch errors in, in classical computing. So you add a parity check. Uh, okay. Quantum bits have high error rates. Um, you know, our coherence times are on the order of tens of microseconds and the gate, the, the duration of the gates is tens of nanoseconds. So that's a factor of a thousand. So you could say that like one in a thousand times we try to do a gate, we get a, one of the qubits suffers an error. That's pretty high error rate. So if you want to be able to actually do a computation, get the right answer, you have to do something like this parity checking that I just described for classical computing, but you have to do it in the quantum case. Now, the reason it's hard in the quantum case goes back to something we said way at the beginning of the podcast, which is that when you measure a quantum state, you, you collapse it. So if you try to add a parity bit, you got to ask yourself, how do you do the checking part? If you go look and say, hey, what's the parity here? I'm going to measure each bit individually and then figure out what the parity is and check whether there's an error. Well, now I've collapsed my quantum state and I can't do my, my algorithm anymore. Yeah. So quantum error correction is this amazing thing where you, you, you manage to do something very similar to this parity check that I just described, but you do it without individually measuring the qubits. And the, the basic idea is that there, you, you cook up a measurement so that you actually measure the parity of all the qubits together without finding out which state each qubit was in. Mm. So you just have to cook up the right measurement. And by doing that, you do not collapse each individual qubit's quantum state, but you still get the parity information that you actually wanted and you can check whether an error happened. Okay, so is it that we cause a, a, a specific qubit to collapse when we learn something about that qubit specifically, whereas when we learn about the parity, parity of the entire system, we can still figure out if there's an error but we haven't measured specific qubits. So those specific qubits don't collapse. Is that right? Uh, okay, so like so many things in, in trying to talk about quantum computing, it's right enough that I'd be totally happy to leave it at that. 
<laughs> if, if this were no seriously like if this were if this were a class and we were doing the mm. theory and writing on the blackboard we'd go into more depth and like we yeah. add some color to this but it, that's a pretty darn good metaphor yeah okay okay so maybe maybe now we can get on to what actually happened in the paper and maybe you could give a brief overview of, of what you guys did and what the results showed please okay so in that paper was um so let, let's make sure we understand exactly what we did in that paper. Uh, so a classical bit is zero or one. A quantum bit is, it has zero and oneness, but it also has this other degree of freedom that we call phase, Never mind what it is, but it's, it's more than being just a zero or a one. And when you do quantum error correction, you have to check for errors, not only in the bits flipping from zero to one, you also have to check for these so-called phase errors. In the paper that you're referring to right now, we did not check both phase and bit flip errors at the same time. Doing that is much harder than checking just one of them. Sure. And so what we did in that paper was we said, all right, our ultimate goal is to do full quantum error correction where we check both kinds of errors. But let's let's take the first step. Let's just check one, one type of error, but do it on on quantum bits and show that we can at least get that far. So we kind of did like half of what you need to do for full quantum error correction in that paper. We checked, um, for example, if you were just checking the bit flips, that would be like doing, it's almost like you're doing the classical part of the error correction because classical bits can flip from zero to one. But if you're not checking the phase, you're not fully error correcting the whole quantum mechanical part of the bits. Yeah. So that's what we did, and and we showed that we showed that it worked, and we were able to catch errors with a good good accuracy, and it was kind of a demonstration that we're sort of halfway there to doing error correction. Mm. And, uh, nothing nothing went horribly wrong, which is a really very encouraging sign, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Getting halfway there in one step is quite impressive as well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I'm pretty sure in the paper you demonstrated. So, something to do with the surface code, right? You had a, a small array of qubits. I think it was seven. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what the surface code is, so I don't really know okay. what it is that you showed. Maybe maybe you could spend a couple of minutes on that, please. Yeah. Okay. So the ultimate goal for us for error correction, or at least what we think, what we're pursuing right now is a a error correction protocol that is called the surface code. And by the way, the word code refers to encoding many physical qubits into one logical qubit, mm. as we talked about earlier. Um, okay. So the surface code is one particular way of doing that. And in the surface code, you arrange your qubits in a square grid or a lattice, however you want to think about it. And then you periodically measure... Um, parity and and there's actually two there's two different kinds of parity that correspond to what i just mentioned about qubits having their zero and one bit degree of freedom but also the phase degree of freedom so you have to check both the bit flip parity and the phase parity so you 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 sort of repeatedly measure those parities on this grid of qubits and whenever you see the parity change you know that there was an error 
And as long as there were not too many errors all at once, you can figure out exactly what error happened and use that information to correct uh, the results of the computation. Okay. That, that's what the surface code is. What we did in this paper was not the surface code. Um, what we did was we, oh, by the way, I should point out that the fact that the surface code is two-dimensional, it's a two-dimensional square grid of qubits, that is kind of related. It's kind of like in some sense, in order to correct both the bit flip errors and the phase errors, you need to have at least two-dimensional connectivity of your qubits. It's, this isn't really right, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay mnemonic to have in your head that having two uh, dimensions in your qubit grid corresponds to being able to fix two kinds of errors, which is what you need for, for qubits. That, that's okay. that's kind of like a, a nice way to think about it, but it's not, it's not really right. So don't, don't tell anyone I told you that. Sure. But anyway, so what we did in the paper was we had a one degree chain of qubits and we fixed, we sort of monitored and, and we were able to track one kind of error. So like I said, that was kind of the, the halfway, the halfway point. Okay. So in, could, could you use that chain to say, first of all, we can demonstrate that we can find bit errors and then in a completely separate run say, oh, we can also find phase errors, but we can't do it at the same time. Um, but, but we can definitely do both. So did you actually show that you can, you can fix phase errors as well, not at the same time as bit errors? Or did you just fix bit errors? We've done the experiment. We've, we've done both independently. Okay. Yeah, we, we can do both kinds of errors one at a time. What we haven't shown yet is doing both at the same time in a square grid. Okay. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe you can't remember and that's okay, but, but in the paper, there was definitely a small grid, uh, a diagram of qubits and the section talking about how, uh, I think you, you would sort of demonstrated that you've done, you've done something that would eventually lead to you be able to do the surface code. Uh, do you, do you remember what that was? Let, let me, let me, let's zoom out a little bit. In the surface code, if the surface code is working correctly, what you want is the following, that when you have a certain number of qubits in the surface code, you have a certain logical error rate. But as you add qubits, so you make it from a grid with a size of three to four to five, mm. you, want the, you want the logical error rate to go down. And in particular, you'd really like it to go down exponentially. Yeah. So... That and you know, and that requires the gates and the readout having a certain amount of accuracy. Showing the results. So okay, so a, a demonstration experiment that you'd really like to do, and this is one of the things that we're working on doing in the future, is to do a surface code with a certain distance, like two, but then also do distance three and check what are the logical error rates. Then do distance five, then do distance seven and show that the logical error rates are going down okay. in, 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 a, in a predictable way. If you can show that, then it's kind of telling you, great, as I'm making the system larger, there isn't some new error mechanism coming in confounding the error correction scheme. It's, it's behaving how it should. The error rate's going down exponentially. Yeah. So now, then you'd be motivated, all right, let's go make a distance 100. And that might actually have a low enough error rate to be interesting. Okay. 
So in this experiment where we just showed the distance two, it's not an it, basically showing that like the algorithm works and mm. you know the 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 error rates let's say conform to a model that makes sense. And by the way, that's really important, and I'll I'll come back to that in a second. But the fact you know until you show different distances, you haven't really established that you get the exponential scaling that you want. So what okay. I would say that this paper shows a couple of things. It showed that as we increased the distance in the one-dimensional chain, it did behave as it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And it showed that when we did the distance two, that one data point made sense and nothing terrible happened. Going okay. from one-dimensional to two-dimensional was okay. Yeah. So then the next step is going to be showing that within the, the two-dimensional case, going to larger and larger system also works. Okay, nice. Yeah. This thing about the, the model, by the way, conforming to a model, that, that was something I should have mentioned about the supremacy experiment. This was extremely important. If you do experiments on one or two qubits and you have a model and it, and it predicts the behavior, that's great. Then you go to like 10 qubits. And the thing is, you can get all these crosstalk channels and effects that simply weren't there with two qubits. And so your, the model that you thought worked for two qubits stops working and you have to add all these extra effects. One of the things that was so exciting about the supremacy experiment was that we took, we measured parameters of the system on individual single qubits, gate accuracy, coherence, things like that. Then we measured the two qubit gate fidelity. And from those numbers, we were able to accurately predict the fidelity of the supremacy experiment with all 53 qubits. That was, in my opinion, one of the most important results of that experiment, because it showed that as we made the system much bigger, nothing qualitatively bad happened. Mm. And that really green lights going to a much bigger system. Yeah. So part of the reason we included the distance two, at least in my mind, part of the value of showing the distance two results in that paper was to say, okay, the distance one, the, sorry, the one-dimensional distance three up to 11, I think it was, that conformed to predictions. So we, nothing terrible happened as we made the system bigger. Yeah. Then we added the second dimension and nothing terrible happened. And that's saying, great, now let's do bigger distance two codes. Okay. Sorry right, if that thank was long-winded, but... No, no, that was a great explanation. Thank you. Okay, so, so you mentioned that you worked on the readout operation. Yeah. In this, this experiment. Uh, I was just wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit more about that, how that works and, and how it affects the error rate. Uh, how readout affects the, like the logical error rates? Yeah. Okay. So it turns out that readout is actually, readout errors can are allowed to be significantly larger than gate errors. Um, why that's the case is roughly the following. So you have a bunch of data qubits. You have a bunch of qubits that, that you actually care about storing information. And then you go and you measure the parities in this surface code thing. Let's say that, and it turns out that to measure the parities, what we actually do is we use more qubits. So we have like these data qubits, which store the information and measure qubits, which do the parity measurements. A measure qubit interacts with some of the data qubits and undergoes transformations that encode the parity of the qubits it interacted with, and then you measure the measure qubit. 
if the measurement itself has an error, you'll get the wrong answer. But then on the next round of error correction, you're going to do the same thing again. So this time, the measure qubit will produce the right answer. So if you do it 10 times, you can clearly infer, okay, there was never actually an error in the data qubits. This was just a measure qubit error. And it's kind of, that's kind of why it's, it's more okay to have measure qubit errors. Whereas if you have errors in the gate, sorry, why it's okay to have measurement errors. If you have errors in the gates, they kind of spread around, kind of. And for that reason, they're worse. Um, they're, they're harder to detect uniquely than our measure errors. Okay. So it turns out that we we we're estimating right now that full fault tolerant quantum computer we need the readout error rate to be about half a percent. Um, so you kind of asked how does that how does measurement error come into the whole system? What I would say is that there's kind of a threshold around half a percent, and if you hit that threshold or get a little bit better, the you will be in the regime where making the surface code larger exponentially suppresses the error rate by a significant amount. And that's the regime you want to be in. And it is kind of a critical phenomenon where as the gate errors get lower and lower, it's kind of like nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then when the gate errors get um, better below a certain point, you're now in this exponential scaling region where making the code bigger is really, really good. So we need the readout in the gates to be across that threshold. And for readout, the threshold is about half a percent. Readout, okay. Readout's a funny thing because it, it seems to be in some sense a lot harder than, than gates in the sense that like getting readout errors to be as low as the gate errors has not happened in superconducting qubits, not even close. Uh, to give you some numbers, like 99% fidelity or 1% error for readout is considered very good. Whereas for gates, you know, a part in a thousand is more what people are talking about or, or even a little bit better. Is there a physical reason behind that? Why, why readout has so much more error? Man, yeah. It's... In some sense, readout is kind of a violent process. When you do, on the other hand, gates is, is, is very nice. So when you do gates, the qubits are isolated. They're or not isolate, the qubits are left alone to talk to each other. Everything is nice, unitary quantum evolution. But readout is when you cross from the quantum world to the classical world. And mm -hmm. that necessarily means taking the information in a qubit, which is in some sense the smallest possible unit of quantum mechanics, and amplifying it up to something large enough for you know, a human or, or like a... Um, um, information storage device like a computer large enough for one of those things to interact with it so this process involves through many steps interfacing the qubit with a huge number of physical degrees of freedom and uh, in some qualitative sense i think that's that contains the nature of why readout is more violent and sort of harder to control Hmm. Specifically with superconducting qubits, why is it hard? It, well, hmm. yeah, man, that's a tricky question. When, when we try to do, one of the ways that you can try to do readout faster is you can try to use a much stronger signal to do the readout. But we discovered in 2000, well, actually it was discovered a long time ago, but kind of understood in 2016 that 
when you do that, you actually cause the qubit to jump out of the zero and one state. In fact, like the transmon jumps into its like sixth energy level. So uh, it's, and that actually has something to do with the, it's basically this, when you do here, here, okay, here's why, here's why, here's why. If you're just doing two qubit gates, you never have more than two uh, quanta in the system. You can have zero quanta, both qubits are in the zero state, or two, both qubits are in the excited state. Mm. That's the most energy that could possibly be involved. But when you do readout, you're trying to amplify up from a qubit to something classical. So you're actually adding a ton of energy into the system. Yeah. And the problem is that that energy being available can get into the qubit and cause the qubit to jump up many, many levels, like to the yeah. sixth or something. That, that's really what it comes down to for the case of transponds. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Sure. Okay, yeah. Another thing in this paper you mentioned there was um, cosmic rays. Yeah. Also an issue. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so this, this I do know about. <laughs> yeah, so, so how do you plan on stopping cosmic rays? Is there a way? Okay, that's kind of a secret sauce question. Okay. <laughs> kind of, kind of. I mean, we'll probably publish about this. Uh, there's a graduate student there's a, a, a UCSB graduate student who's interning with us working on that problem specifically. So I, I, abs I totally don't want to steal his thunder at all. So okay. I'll say, okay. I'll we'll say wait this. for the paper. Yeah. I'll <laughs> say this, I'll say this. Um, we see high energy events on the chip. We see cases where you, like you can measure the, the coherence time of the qubits over and over and over and over. And what you see is every now and then, like every qubit on the chip's coherence time just goes very low and then it takes it, and it takes some time for them to recover and the energy scales are roughly aligned with the generation of superconducting quasi-particles and and many of them so then you ask well where could so many quasi-particles be coming from and you start thinking about either cosmic rays or radiation it doesn't necessarily even have to be cosmic rays. Like radiation from just the materials in the apparatus that the qubit's in is enough can, can generate enough energy to do this um we are absolutely not the first people to see this. There's a technology called MKID, which is where they use uh, superconducting resonators as a um, astronomical tool. You actually put them in the focal plane of a telescope and you focus optical light onto the resonators. And when a photon comes in from, from the sky and hits the resonator, it creates quasi-particles and you can detect that that, 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 that happened. And, and they see, they see this effect. They see these effects where every now and then all of their resonators or, or all the resonators in the neighborhood of the chip suddenly just undergo this, this massive uh, process where like tons of quasi-particles are generated. So just to clarify that, we're certainly not the first piece people to see this. But what's really cool is in the MKID case where they have tens of like a 10,000 pixel array of resonators for their astronomical application, they can actually do, make time-resolved movies where there's like this epicenter where all of a sudden the quasi particles and you can watch these videos where this ring like expands through the chip like a wave so you can tell that it's a localized event mm. something's happening at a single point and then and then radiating destruction <laughs> outward and uh yeah so so we know that there are high energy events we know that they happen at there it's a localized process in some cases uh, and so it seems like it's radiation hits of some kind could be, could be from the sky, could be from the surrounding apparatus. And then, so then the discussion becomes, okay, 
can we shield them? If it's cosmic rays, shielding them is, is hard. If it's coming from impurities in the apparatus, then the conversation turns into, okay, can we, can we pay a bunch of money and get higher purity materials that don't radiate? Yeah. Or, or can we do something on the chip so that when one of these events happens, it can't spread? It turns mm-hmm. out that for fault-tolerant quantum computing, having a qubit get annihilated every now and then is okay. But having that wave of low coherence spread across the chip is much worse. So if we can just contain the damage, hmm. and when I say damage, I don't mean that the qubits are actually being destroyed. I just mean that their coherence is being reduced for some time. If we can contain that effect so that it doesn't affect too many qubits, it would be okay. And that's one of the avenues that we're looking into. Um, could that kind of tie back to what we were talking about earlier with the distributed chips? If if one chip gets hit, then it's not going to the other chips, right? Yeah. That's and and you could imagine doing things even within a chip, you know, physically mm. doing things to the substrate yeah. or to the metals, so that when one of these energy events hits, it can't it can't expand too much. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the time, and we only have about ten minutes left, so I guess we should get on to the uh, the final few questions. Uh, this one is is a two part question. So, where do you hope the state of quantum computing is going to be when you either retire or leave the field and like more realistically, where do you think it's going to be? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting question because, uh, when I retire or leave the field is kind of tied to how far the field gets in the, in the, <laughs> okay, yeah. in, the in the following sense. Personally, I feel like if we, if, and when we make a large, you know, like a thousand qubits or something like that and can maintain a quantum state for a long time, let's say an hour, I will feel intellectually satisfied to the point that I could finally let go of quantum computing and consider maybe pursuing one of my other interests finally. <laughs> so for me, like, like I, I, I'm a servant of the field until we get that far. Okay. Um, so by construction, <laughs> that's where I think quantum computing will be when, if and when I leave. The <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. And maybe I'll decide to stay longer. I don't know. But I, yeah, I, I think as soon as you get the taste of that nice, long, long logical qubit, you will specifically think, oh, it's time to pack everything in now. Yeah, I mean... I... I've had an, in, my, actually, my interest in physics arose when I was a kid out of an interest in biology and going into quantum computing meant giving that up. So at some point I, I may want to return to that interest. Okay. Uh, I also have a strong concern for the ecological future of the planet. And, yeah. and that's so, and that's something that like, that's always on my mind as like, what's more important quantum computing or, or this other really mm-hmm. important issue. So, um, in some sense, I'm looking forward to quantum computing getting to a point where I can kind of feel okay to, to step away and go do something yeah. else. Okay. Um, so that answers your first question. Where do I think it will actually be? I mean, progress has been pretty good. Mm. Progress has been pretty good. You know, I could imagine I'm 36. By the time I retire, 
in, I don't know, 40 or 50 years probably. I'd be surprised if we didn't have a quantum computer by then, to be honest. You mean the universal? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot. Progress has been pretty steady. Yeah. Okay. I mean, comp cool. Competition within the field has been getting stiffer and stiffer in the sense that, you know, like China has tons of resources into that field now. And um, like it, quantum computing Silicon Valley startups are a thing. I mean, who would have thought that? And, <laughs> So I, I expect in the field and we've got so much progress in the last 10. Years. Yeah. I'd be really universal quantum computer by the time I retire. Yeah. Just got to hope it doesn't, it's not the general AI thing where it's always 20 years away. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and lastly, okay. So what, what would be your advice? Um, someone pursuing this field at the moment, I, I suppose, yeah, from, from any level, no, if they're like considering a PhD or. Ah, okay. Um, well, if that person is interested in the hardware aspect, uh, my advice would be um, build, build a good hardware toolbox. So, you know, when, for, you know, when we, I'll, I'll bring it down to hiring for a minute. Like when we hire people, it doesn't really matter whether they know superconducting qubits. Uh, if that person has demonstrated that, you know, they know their way around a lab, they know how to program, uh, and they can manage kind of complex fit research on a physical system and, and make progress. That's what we really care about. So, you know, I would tell a student, don't stress too much over getting into a, any particular, um, a lab that does a particular piece of that does experiments on a particular piece of hardware. Focus on finding labs where the tool set that you get is good. You know, the most important thing is to be in in a lab with smart people. That's by far the most important thing. Don't ever be the smartest person in the room. Always find people who know more than you and hang out with them and do work with them. That's the best thing. Uh, so yeah, so like if you know if you're an undergrad, I think grad school is it really opens a lot of opportunities. You, you learn more than anything in doing a PhD, how, how to be independent, how to make progress on a difficult problem on, on your own, but also on your own is getting the right help from other people. Um, and that's, that's one of the main things I got out of grad school. So grad school can be very enabling, but it's not the only route. Uh, I, met somebody when I gave a talk at Google X a few years ago and someone came up to me afterwards and said, Hey, I think this field is really interesting. And I'm considering going back to grad, you know, going to grad school to get a PhD so that I could work in this field. And we talked for a while and I kind of said, you know, why don't you just transfer to our team? <laughs> and, and, and he did, and he, you know, he was a software engineer, but now he works on quantum error correction. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. Right. So like, you know, going to grad school is not the only way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Getting, gaining technical knowledge and skills and experience, and then, you know, showing, you know, expose your interest, go to conferences and tell, you know, if you see someone give a talk on something you like, go tell them you're interested in it. And you might, you know, you might do that 
20 times before you get a good response. But you know, so what? If somebody says no or doesn't respond to you, you haven't lost much. So what I'm saying is put yourself out there, tell people you're interested and want to help. And uh, I, I've seen so many cases where that turns into a job. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, some really great advice there. Yeah, that was good. That was great. Thanks. Yeah, um, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks of a lot, course. Daniel. It's been, it's been great. This was a lot of fun, guys. Yep. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Entangled Whip. Please join us for future episodes on topics ranging from QKD to trapped iron quantum computing to creating a quantum startup. Thanks again and see you next time.